0: Hi, and welcome to the human side of business podcast. I'm Angie Cabe, CEO and co-founder of Intuity Performance. I'm a performance coach, HR professional, whole person leadership facilitator, and your host. The human side of business podcast is fueled by the genuine curiosity to understand how personal characteristics and skills can be leveraged to drive individual and team performance, tangible outcomes, and ultimately organizational success within business. Each podcast is devoted to sharing knowledge, expanding our learning edges, and exploring the trends in corporate culture towards growing the emotional intelligence of organizations. I'm so glad you're here. Hi there. This is Ange McCabe, CEO and co-founder of Intuity Performance, where our business is the success of your business. I'm a performance coach, HR professional, facilitator, and your host of the Elevate Business podcast. The Elevate Business Podcast is a journey of discovery fueled by the curiosity to genuinely understand what makes people tick when it comes to their professional path, choices made, and the personal characteristics that drive performance, tangible outcomes, and ultimately success. The Elevate Business Podcast is here to promote the enormous contributions of small and medium sized businesses around the world by exploring the actions that make a workplace successful the trends in corporate culture towards growing the emotional intelligence of an organization and how we build whole person performance from the ground up. Each podcast is devoted to sharing knowledge, growing our learning edges and honoring our passions with a special guest who has elevated their business, overcome obstacles and inspires others to do the same. So glad you're here. Hi, and a warm welcome to episode number 29 of the Elevate Business Podcast. Both myself, Ange McCabe, and Scott Russ are your hosts. We have the pleasure of introducing you to Michael Jensen, who is an impassioned architect, urbanist, and entrepreneur. With two decades of experience founding and leading high-growth companies in the U.S. and Asia, Michael has worked as an architect in India and China founded a BIM service company that grew to 500 employees in four years, and now leads the team at City Zenith as CEO. Welcome, Michael.
1: Oh, uh, Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your, yourself, your company, and your journey to where you're at today.
1: Sure. Uh, well, you know, City Zenith is a software company. We're based uh, between Chicago and London, and we're helping to pioneer a Technology trend called digital twinning, uh, especially in the building and cities industry. Um, digital twins are 3D virtual replicas of buildings and infrastructure, and they're connected to all the data in and around them. And they're used by architects, engineers, property managers, owners to optimize various aspects of the entire building process from design through construction and ultimately you know, operating these properties. So um, we've been in business, I guess, for about 10 years now, and a lot of our work is uh, on what we call urban-scale digital twins, hence Zenith. A, a lot of different types of digital twin companies out there doing things for manufacturing plants and things for the oil and gas sector, etc. Our focus is on buildings and cities with a specific emphasis on decarbonization today, so helping buildings and cities to achieve uh, carbon neutrality. Um, it's a long. It's been a long journey, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure where you want to start or you know how far you want to go. But uh, I can give a nutshell, I suppose.
0: Yes, yeah. that would be fantastic.
1: Well, I and you know, if you can imagine, this product is like Sim City, but for real cities, and it helps cities become uh, you know carbon free, right? And we don't often do an entire city at the same time. Most of what we do is really a part of the city. Um, a, a new master development, uh, a large infrastructure project, a uh, uh, port, an airport, um, uh, Urban Ford, which is like a downtown regeneration project of some kind, which is popular in the US and around the world these days. But that's really what we do. And this, this comes from my background, really, in architecture and technology. I'm an architect by training. Um, I was uh, originally um, a graduate of the Yale School of Architecture and then Cambridge in the UK in the late 80s, early 90s and went straight to, to Asia in the early 90s during the the beginning of the the, the, uh, the Southeast Asia boom, which was kind of led by China and ultimately Asians across Southeast Asia and East Asia. So from the time I was 23, as a young architect there, I was thrown onto city scale projects because everything in China was 10 times bigger than it was over here. and uh, I remember jobs being 6 million feet, 8 million feet, 14 million feet. But if 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 the shopping mall was two stories, two stories here, it was eight stories in China. It was just remarkable. And so I had this exposure to that scale of project and also all the complexity around doing those kinds of things. Um, and my journey continued, carried me from, from China later on to India, where I was still a young man, but decided to... Uh, Take a year as an, you know, out as a Fulbright scholar and go to India to research traditional Indian architecture and, and design for a year. Um, that ultimately led to my becoming something of an Asia file and I ended up <coughs> becoming a, uh, a principal in a, a US based architectural practice that has been opened an open office for them in South Asia and that continued. I joined another firm after that, so I had like about ten years of really strong foundational training in in in, in making real buildings as, as a hardcore architect. My path was to become a principal, and that was was mm. going to happen. So by my kind of like early thirties, um, I was faced with an interesting challenge. I, have, I was working for a firm, and they had like eleven offices worldwide. And within two years, I had grown their second largest office, and we were doing something that was unique. We were producing their All of their documentation, all of their CAD drawings, offshore for all of their offices, and it just grew really quickly. Mm. And I decided at the time that uh, this was—I was in my—it was a pivotal moment. Do I stay or do I go? Do I continue down this path or do I, you know, do my own thing? And I just felt like it was time to do my own thing. It was a gamble, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. I was very close to the CEO. I realized I didn't think like the other employees did. Um, I felt like the boss did, even when I was, you know, paid like an employee. And I decided that, you know, it, I, I cared about that company as much as it was my own. I might as well start my own. So I went and started my own company. Um, I didn't know what to do, and a close friend of mine was uh, an outsourcing expert in India, and he came to me and he said, "You know, what you're doing here is actually building an outsourcing company." So, um, long story short, we. we, we what, what we were doing with that one company, we ended up building a business around doing that for hundreds of companies. And uh, within four years, that company had grown to 500 employees worldwide. Sequoia Capital had come and invested $13 million in the business. Um, you know, the CNN cameras, the CNBC cameras were going through the <laughs> office. Anybody who was anybody in the building industry showed up at my office at some point, from CEO of Gensler to uh, the CEO of Autodesk. I mean, some big people. It was really amazing because it was a phenomenon. All these world's great projects were being done in this shed out in Eastern Delhi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, including, by the way, Trump Tower. We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this, is, this is why we ended up here. After that company got very big, we realized that uh, we were having to develop skill sets in over like 20 different software tools to be able to pull off one job. And that's when we thought there really has to be one open software platform, almost like a virtual SimCity type thing that can take all the different 3D model technologies and all these GIS based maps, all these fancy things that designers use to, for, for projects and turn them into one environment that we could all share together. And that became the journey that we're now on. Fortunately, we were able to hire the gentleman who created Google Earth thanks to Sequoia Capital Um, In 2009, he had just left uh, Google, joined us and and built version one. And and he put us on a path that uh, I think shook us all up because we all came from the building industry, very serious architecture, technology people. And he came in, he was a gamer. And he said, we're going to make you the most sophisticated video game rules ever seen. And and that was what he told me. Um, And that's what smart world, our product today, you know, aspires to be Uh, a real world video game that. Architects, engineers, planners—everyone uses to make everything better. So, you know, you could—that's that was the journey. I mean, we've been from the day from his days to uh, early days with cities and winning early awards and working with places like Barcelona and London and San Francisco to eventually deciding to to focus in the private sector around 2016. And today, that's really what we do. We're, We're working with large developers and energy services companies, that type of thing. But has never really changed, you know. I think that's the that's the beautiful part. So it's always it's always a pleasure to share it. And I think the for me finally, you know, it's also kind of just beginning. You know, we're 10 years into this and I think I'm starting to look down the road and I can see another five or ten years coming, you know, so given what we've all been seeing. So very interesting time.
2: Yeah. That sounds like it. No, that's that's very exciting, Michael. And I and I love the the transition we've seen throughout your your path. It's almost a roadmap of really building that foundation as an architect and getting an understanding of, you know, how things work, right? And then transitioning into another role in India where now you, you kind of gotten that feeling of like, I feel like a boss. I'm acting like a boss, even though I'm being paid like an employee. That's and right. then identifying that, that need in the market and kind of saying, Hey, I think this, this thing can be done better. And right. you've heard that at a lot of entrepreneurs that we speak to around, right. so that's kind of like that pivotal point where, okay, well, do I stay or do I go?
1: Right, right. It's always a, uh, I think it pulls at everybody, you know. And yeah. you end up hiring people who were as edgy as you were, you know. And <laughs> in their own organizations, like yeah, you know that that's that everything's going wrong. And if we just fix that one thing, you know, and then they come to your company and they're able to fix it. So uh, you know, I think it's exciting when you put together a group of like-minded, you know, what I call a tribe of experts was my was my goal with this company. Mm-hmm. The last company had hundreds and hundreds of employees and, we um you know we we did something which more production oriented, I guess that was a, a mm-hmm. art and a, a science to being able to get to do what we did, you know, thousands of projects. Um this is much more of a creative project and a technology challenge. So we we brought in people from all over the world. Um, you know, our 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 the guy who does our visualization work, for example, today is a professor of architecture visual, visualization from the University of Madrid, who also worked for this company before even I did back in 2004. So he's been on this path to solve these kinds of problems for the better part of 20 years. You know, the, right. our product engineer came, comes from a big New York firm and he's been in computational uh, uh, design part of architecture, for, again, for 10 years trying to solve these kinds of problems. So that's exciting when a group like that gets together try to do something special.
0: Mm. And you, you said a few you... Uh, interesting things there, Michael, with regards to building the tools or getting the tools in your toolbox to get you where you are today. Right. one predominant thing that has kind of resonated with me is the word edgy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you describe your edge?
1: Well, I think we just saw so much complacency, you know, in the industry around the incumbent technologies and we all just kind of use them and don't say anything I suppose and uh, we get trained and a handful of software companies get very rich and the projects kind of get sort of done. I think there was uh, what I think inspired me was seeing the the rate at which China was able to build cities when I was a very young man and, and, and also how Asia generally was able to do things at an incredible pace which the United States once was able to do but doesn't anymore and that right. That created an edginess in me to think, we're not going to be the kind of country that we wanna be if we're doing things like this today. We, we got great because we built the Pentagon in 10 months. Um, you can't, you couldn't even spec the Pentagon in 10 months today. You know, you couldn't even get a bid out in 10 months. It would take 10 years, right? The way things have changed so much. So yeah, you know, the, the edginess comes in the impatience around the fact that we know that the world needs 10,000 cities in the next 30 years with these tools? No. And I think that's where, you know, kind of we came in and thought, well, we can definitely make some part of this equation better.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned being able to, it, it almost seems like you were able to grow your team at, with ease. However, I'm, I'm curious, but what were some of the maybe um, pain points that you experienced in, in growing your team of experts, uh, if any?
1: well I think it's it's nothing's ever easy um the more clear you are about who you are and what you need the better. I think there was a lot of uh transition over the ten years uh in terms of because we had three or four different complete different teams work on this product and each team did something a little bit different one of the very first teams came from the architecture world like me uh a subsequent team was really from the web world uh a team after that was very focused on GIS, which is basically the 2D digital mapping part of, of the universe of so cities use these for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And they were all, they all achieved something. And I, and none of them were actually what we really needed. And so what happened was that the team that, that we ultimately built and took the product uh, to market with was kind of an amalgam of everybody who'd come before plus people that we never, never imagined would come. and as the mission became more and more clear um, what happens is that people kind of start coming to you and the interviews are very easy. You know, for us we'll interview five people and we'll know almost immediately who the person is. And my strategy is in team building. And I did this in my last company too, especially in a tribe of experts type of situation is that it's hard working in this company because everyone's super smart and they're going to argue with you and they're going to make fun of your work and they're going to challenge you and they're going to go up to three in the morning and, why aren't you? And you know it's going to be a, it's a tough work environment. So I'm um, also very enjoyable because you get a lot of freedom. Um, we basically say if you can create something cool, we're going to use it. You know, and people love that. So they come to us with things that we never thought of, you know possible. Um, but what I do is I bring, I always take every serious candidate and make, let that person meet every other person on the team. Uh, that person gets passed around, as we say, and. That's because we're going to be super, super sure that, that person is going to fit in. It's almost like a hazing process in the beginning before you even join the company and <laughs> make sure that because we don't want you to come in and crack. So we everyone needs to know that you're going to be OK and that we're all talking the same language. And so now there's a culture because we do that of people of certain values that, you know, I think is the reason we are who we are. You know, they're, they're no nonsense, hardworking um, we, they, they're very anti flashy resume. They're more about grit and problem solving. And so that becomes a culture, you know, and that's why, you know, taking it seriously is important.
0: And in understanding a little bit more about your culture, how do you set up your team members, uh, to thrive within that culture?
1: Well, the first thing you have to do is, uh, make sure that, uh, when they come in, that there's a, a clear path for them. Uh, I usually guide them in myself, and then I put them in the hands of the people they're going to be working with immediately. Right. Uh, there is an orientation process, uh, and I, you know, I learned this in my last company. Really, you, you don't bring anybody unless you know you can quote unquote take care of them, which means support them with resources, whatever it needs, whatever they need to be able to succeed. Um, so, initially, it's about integration. Ultimately, it's about support. Uh, I have very open dialogues with all of my team members and you never know what's going to come up from uh, needs for uh, software to hardware to uh, you know personal issues to whatever um, you know, you try try to address those with everybody in a very candid candid way so I can they know I'm there to enable their success right they know that I'm not really I'm the boss okay but really my job is to enable their success so they their deal with me is we're gonna work really hard and make great stuff. you just make sure everything works for us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's really how it goes so you know there isn't really a top-down like sure i take the decisions but the tail wags the dog in this company too because if the engineers don't like it, it's not going to happen right so we have that kind of trust relationship and that's one of the reasons i think we can accomplish a lot with the team we have
0: and also hearing veins of high levels of accountability and accountability so you know yes. reflecting on what you had said earlier michael in the sense of understanding that if you create something really cool, it's going to be used that to me kind of converts into that autonomy piece and accountability, um, for the products or, or, you know, the, I guess the visions, um, or designs that they're presenting within the company.
1: Right. it's absolutely true. Um, I would use the word ownership. You now that I think that employees, uh, team members have, have a strong sense of ownership of their product because they do, they, they, yeah. um, you know, when I hear about how other software companies work that, they, that, they, that they've come from and I can't believe the politics, the, the nonsense that goes on in trying to develop something you know, on a single software team. I, I can understand. Yeah. But here, um, no, it not work that way. I remember I learned this from one of my that company. I mentioned I worked with in India originally um, was a very successful company. And if you've never worked for a very successful company for it's a little different from other companies <laughs> which aren't as successful. You know, you walk in the doors and there's movement everywhere, and some there's things happening, and proposals flying off the table, and all kinds of stuff. And that's a very different vibe. So I learned, uh, you know, in doing that, that there was kind of a pace that you want to keep. You know, and uh, the team members buy into that, and they help me propagate it.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I'm, I'm curious, Michael, you mentioned how the vision for Cities Zenith has kind of continued to form over the years. And I think it wasn't too long ago you guys decided to focus more on the private sector, if I understand correctly. Um, how, did, how did how were you able to keep your team aligned with that company vision as it continued to form and continue to change along the way?
1: A couple of things. I mean, the, the key people, I guess, even look at the last three years. Um, I keep talking to the key people all the time Uh, as a group of executive managers individually. And, and, uh, and then I have these monthly town halls in which I talk to everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just a question of communicating as you're going along and the, we've been lucky to have a a kind of locus of, of core people who've been wonderful with us for many years now that, um, we've only really built built around, I guess, since. So, uh, and what happens is when that kind of nucleus becomes really tight and well articulated, then all of the other planets kind of orbit, sort of show up and start orbiting naturally. everybody else kind of understands that. Okay, this is what they do. This is who they are. And you start attracting similar people to uh, to the company. So, communication. You know, it's very important and making sure people understand the vision and that they buy into it also, that they understand why we're doing this. And mm-hmm. I've been doing that the whole time. I mean, the most recent example would be talking to the staff within the last year about the fact that we're going to focus on decarbonization almost exclusively, you know, in, in, and uh, what that meant and things we're going to do. Um, and they all love the idea. You know, they're all I said, why not? I mean, let's do some good for the world and make great software. So um, talking to people.
0: Yeah, leaning into that, Michael, it almost sounds like, you know, the communication of the vision is kind of like the, the initial piece for you as the CEO. And then on a day-to-day basis, those are related or reiterated um, mm-hmm. to your nucleus and the larger um, team members or group of team members to ensure that they're all on the same page. That's right. When it comes- when it comes to communication in today's landscape, especially, you know, there's a a myriad or a blend of remote work and in office work and at distance work and work-life balance and all that great stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you ensure that you're supporting your team around communication and what does that look like?
1: Well, we have, we're not so big that it's hard. I think we have good structure now between virtual and other forms of communication. Um, if we weren't for COVID, there would be more in-person than there is today. Uh, so the company doubled in size while virtual, which is kind of weird for me. And we also added a lot of people from a lot of countries at the same time, Bulgaria, Spain, the UK, Canada, all this year, um, which was interesting. So we get in the call, Russia, Sweden. So I mean, there are lots of folks in the company now that are part of what we do. So, um you know, there I think we frankly excel. We're really tight. I mean, we've you know, give it to to the hand it to the team for using tools the right way. Also, there's a cultural part of that too, which is just being available and being responsive. Um, there's a culture in the company that we, we're available to each other, and if you write to somebody, you get right back to them. Now, a lot of companies, people want to get back within a day or an hour or two or three. There's, there's none of that here. We're constantly in a constant what we call flow state. So if you're creating in your cave and she's creating in her cave, she knows that, that she needs something from you. You have to deliver it towards that She asks you give, that's the trust that we have. And I think that makes it work, mm-hmm. makes it work.
2: So I'm curious there, Michael, And you, you mentioned this uh, idea of like being in uh, promoting a flow state and the fact that how people need to be interconnected. Um, so I'm curious, how does that kind of form my question here? The idea of always being available to your team members, but still being able to be in your cave and focus on, on the development work that you're, you're creating. Mm-hmm. How, how does that work within the organization, or even for yourself?
1: Well, you have to set up boundaries um, as a CEO. It's very easy to get sucked into being on stage all the time, <laughs> and that's you know difficult. So I do it a few different ways. I have blocks in my schedule where nobody can take meetings with me, although that's downtime. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing it for 15 years, Wednesday mornings, by and large, um, not today, but by and large, it been completely downtime for me today I have like five meetings. I just forget about the rules, but we usually <laughs> take that time to uh, do something else. And plus also other times during the day. Uh, and then in the evenings, um, I used to be available consistently pretty much at any time. Um, I think after dinner time now for me, I slow down because I'm up very early. I'm up like 4:30 or 5 and I'm communicating with Asia, Middle East, and Europe from like 5 to 5:30 a.m. I just had a call to call the Saudi Arabia before this call. So um, I have a need for my own personal space and boundaries. So for me, what works is not being available in the evening. Then I can decelerate, I can sleep well, I can recover into the next day, which you need to be able to do. My previous business. It was like running a race and then getting to the finish line and trying to go to sleep. Like you're still amped up and the adrenaline is <laughs> still flowing through your veins mm-hmm. and you're trying to sleep, you know, and of course I had sleep troubles. So I think establishing boundaries is is kind of how you achieve that. Mm-hmm. And then respecting those. Like, you know, if I, we don't, I don't, I'm not going to ping somebody at an unusual time for no reason. Right. No.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense in the sense of creating that flow state as well as those boundaries. Um, And it's a fantastic tip, you know, or I guess analogy with regards to sprinting and having having your adrenaline going and then trying to go to sleep right away. Um, That's something that really resonates with me right now in in our journey (laughs) as well. Um, So our last question for you, Michael, what are three words of inspiration that you would want the world to hear?
1: Three words of inspiration? Yes if I look at my own example, what mattered? Uh, well, perseverance, uh, is a big one because you just don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, I would say belief. Don't forget that it's your belief that got you there in the first place and people's trust in your belief. I think finally, a word that we use a lot over here is grit. Um, Nothing's going to be easy, ladies and gentlemen. So accept that now. Both the grit will help you get through it.
0: That's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Michael, Uh, and also joining with us today. We really appreciate you sharing your entrepreneurial insights with Intuitive Performance and our subscribers.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And for those who would like to learn more about uh, your business, we're going to provide a link uh, to Michael's company profile uh, through the Elevate Business podcast title page. Take
1: good care. Thanks, you too.
0: Thank you very much for all of our subscribers to tuning in to another great episode of the Elevate Business uh, podcast. Take good care. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Business podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. You can subscribe to future podcasts at intuitiveperformance.com where you can also sign up for webinars and learn more about professional coaching and our facilitation solutions available to help fire up your whole person performance skills and drive actions for success. Until next time, stay true to you and take care of each other. We are all better together. Thanks for listening to the Human Side of Business podcast. I'm glad you could join us. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay updated with our latest content, make sure to visit our website. The link can be found in the episode description where you can subscribe to the podcast, sign up for our newsletter and learn more about our whole person leadership services. Sounds interesting? Explore the whole person leadership cohort by Intuity Performance, a unique program that offers unparalleled support to managers on every step of their leadership journey. Our program features evidence-based assessments, workbooks, group coaching, and interactive learning experiences to help you level up your leadership skills. Reach out today to apply to one of our upcoming cohorts. Until next time, take care and stay curious.